but they're all right, but just keep them in prayer. And those are the announcements that i got to make. So open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I keep trying to get out of this. Thought I was done, and last week I had something, and I thought we were done on it this time, and uh, I'll explain to you how we still are in this. But I believe it's timely, and I believe it's what's got. I look, what I look for in a, when, to decide what the message is is for something to go off in me. Sometimes it's, I can't describe what it's like. I mean, last Sunday, the message was on the way in. I think it was on Friday. I was on my way in and turned the corner up here by the Martin School, and a verse just highlighted inside of me, and I knew that was it. And um, uh, last night, um, I came home from prayer. We were a little late because we prayed over some people and took a little longer than normal, which was wonderful. And um, got home and uh, had something to eat because I hadn't eaten. And... Um, uh, did some reading, and just before I went to bed, decided, well, I'm going to check on the Olympics and see how they're doing. And I haven't watched much of them. I haven't really got into them uh, this year. And um, um, and I, I turned turned the TV on, and I pressed the buttons on my remote, but I must have pressed the wrong button because inst- <laughs> instead of seeing the Olympics, I saw the last episode of Ken Burns' series on World War II. But it was God because it was about the Battle of the Bulge. And I sat down there, you know, I turned back to the Olympics and I kept going back to this war documentary. And the more I got involved in it, the more it began, God began to speak to me out of it. I came into prayer last night and I know, I'm, I'm sure at least one or two of you have had this thought in your mind. You know, I think I'm just going to chuck the thing in. You know, I, just, I can't do this. Sometimes just, just get under pressure. As a pastor, you hear all kinds of, you don't hear many good reports, you hear all the bad reports. And they'll stack up on you sometimes. Sometimes I don't even want to open my emails because they're just a series of reports. And, uh, and the enemy just tries to bombard you and discourage you and says, you know, you don't belong here, it's not worth it. All this garbage, the same garbage he talks to you, he talks to me. And I'm sitting here during prayer just, you know, starting to feel sorry for myself. And just, but I began to do what David did. I just began to cry out to him, Lord, these are the feelings I'm having. I know it's not the truth, but I just need you to help me, to strengthen me. And... And I, had, I met with somebody and came back in, and, and Pastor Ray was praying for people. So I started praying with him, and the next thing I know, I'm all charged up again. And I go home and says, oh, God, that's not, what I, that's not the way out I thought he was going to use, but it's the way out that works. And often he'll have you give out of your need, and, that, and, and it gets something flowing again. Because it's in there, it just needs to get flowing again. But anyway, I'm sitting watching this, this, this documentary, and I'm just glued to it. Uh, and it's not the most you know, uplifting thing in the world. But what the story was about this, for those of you who may not know, uh, after the Allied invasion in June of 1944, gradually, and just because the Allies made it into Europe doesn't mean that they had beaten the enemy. So there's a gradual progression of taking more and more of, of, of territory until most of France was taken. And they were pretty well lined up outside the German boundary, and, uh, and, and had been there for quite a while, actually for about six months or so. And in an area called the Ardennes, which is a, and Link Mossop's here, he's more of an expert, far more of an expert on, than, on this than I am. And we've had some others that are from World War II still here. And, um, but if I, my understanding is that they were using this, this, the Ardennes, which was a, uh, a, a beautiful forest, as a place of, of rest and recreation for the troops that had been through such battles for such a long time. And, and, and so that's the point is they were gathered in this area not prepared for battle. They were primarily there for rest and recreation. 
And Hitler knew that, well, at least his generals knew that the war essentially was over. They were not going to win. But Hitler decided that he was not going to go down without a fight. So he recruited everybody from 16 to 60 and put them in the army, whether they were equipped or not, concentrated divisions on this, the center of this line right where at this forest and made an all-out assault to try to drive the Allied forces back, create a division, and ultimately drive some of them back to the sea. The analysis that was given last night, and I looked some things up today, said there was no way he was ultimately going to win. But he didn't care whether he was going to win or not. He wanted to destroy as many of the Allied soldiers as he could. And I'm watching that, and what God starts speaking to me about is, why are you surprised at what's going on? Because there are a lot of people really in some battles right now. Financial battles, physical battles. I've just come through a physical battle. I wasn't expecting, I was expecting to go through a nice, easy procedure, and things didn't go the way I thought. God's good. We've come through it. We're strong. We're getting stronger every day. I did two services on Sunday. I, I did the second service. I got stronger and stood through most of it. Look at me. I'm standing now. And um, so, so God's been very faithful and good. But, but it's like the Lord is speaking to me. Don't you recognize? I mean, what do you think you've been teaching? You're in a war. And war is not a vacation. War is not sitting on the beach where everything just goes well. There's an enemy out to stop you. And there are casualties. Stuff happens sometimes that people don't like. And I began to put myself in the mentality, to the best I could, of what some of these soldiers must have gone through. I mean, some of them were away from their families for three years or so or plus. It, it, they said that there, there was, um, uh, they recognized that they could get into war fatigue. And they figured out war fatigue, they qualified for it when they'd been in over 200 and some days of battle consecutively. I'm thinking, my goodness, 200 days of battle, and they ought to be basket cases by that point. And so the point is this, that we are in a war. That's what Ephesians 6 talks about, starting in verse 10. And there's certain aspects of being in a war that we don't think about because it's spiritual warfare. Till you look at a documentary like that and realize there's some things that go in in war that is just not fun, that is not pleasant. In fact, there's very little that goes on in war that's fun and pleasant. It's, you've got somebody trying to destroy you. They're shooting real bullets at you with the intent of maiming, killing, or destroying you. Well, John 10.10 says we have an enemy. And his sole goal is to steal kill, or destroy. So why are we shocked when we discover there's someone out there trying to steal, kill, or destroy from us? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So why are we shocked when we tribulate? Right? So we're going to talk a little bit about this, about, about the fact that we are in a war. We've talked about this before. Ephesians chapter 10, 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. You don't put on the armor to go to the beach. You put on a bathing suit to go to the beach. You put on an armor if you're going into war. The purpose of the armor is because somebody's shooting at you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks of the devil. For we don't wrestle. This is not the Olympic wrestling. This is a fight. We don't wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age but against, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And we've read all this before and studied it. So the point is this. We are in a war. One of the things that was interesting 
is that um, it, what it did is therefore it required them to wake up and realize what was going on. And what they were after, the ultimate goal of this, well, the ultimate goal was bigger than that, but the immediate goal, as I understand it, of the German forces was to reach several towns, three towns, but the most critical one was the one called Bastogne because some major roads went through there that were all weather, I mean, all they could go through them in the wintertime. And if the Germans captured that, then what was going to happen is they were going to have access to go around the back of the flank of the Allied forces and cut some of them off. So this was a critical place to draw a battle line. But the first point is this. The soldiers, the Allied forces, were not expecting to be in a... They thought essentially that they were on the downside, that the real battles had been fought. They'd come through the beaches of Normandy. They'd gotten the beachhead. They'd been moving the, the enemy back. They had recaptured France and liberated France, most of it. And now they were about on the verge of entering into the enemy's territory itself. And victory was at hand. They could see it, smell it. And so there's a tendency when you get to that point to just relax a little bit and say, okay, we basically won this. And forget that there is an enemy that can still strike back. Now, we're going to look at some scriptures later on, hopefully tonight, that show us that the battle, the war has been won. Jesus has defeated the enemy. But he's still around. All right? The tide of World War II in, in Europe had been won. But the enemy was still there was still armed and still had the capacity to fight back. And so what happens, happened is, before it was over, the enemy launched an all-out counterattack in an effort to stop this ultimate victory. And as I was watching that, one of the techniques they used is they parachuted behind the Allied lines German soldiers dressed in Allied uniforms, and they did things like, so they was having, the, the Allied forces were having trouble knowing who to trust and who not to trust. Because they couldn't just trust by looks. And these German soldiers in Allied uniforms were turning signs around, you know, uh, booby-trapping bridges and things like that to make it more difficult. So the enemy tried to get behind the lines and confuse the soldiers as to who the real enemy was. Now, the Bible tells us who our enemy is here. It says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we've done that before. We, you know, look to your left, look to your right. That's not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. Your kids are not your enemy. Your parents are not your enemy because they wear flesh and blood. Now, your enemy is Satan and all these forces that serve under him. But he will use people. Because he wants you to be distracted to think you've, the, that the wrong enemy is after you. And that's exactly what the German forces did. They tried to fool the Allied forces so they couldn't be sure who their enemy was. All right. Now, so it requires... But, but what, as I was looking at this, several things struck me. First of all, there has to be a mentality in war. And the church doesn't have that mentality yet. I don't know why, because... You know, and I'm talking to me tonight because we're almost in a foreign land nowadays. This is not the nation I grew up in. It's not the value system. It's not the news system. It's not the media system. It, n almost nothing that's of significance out there is the same in what I grew up in, most of you grew up in. 
So it's almost as if we're in foreign territory right now. And so I don't know why we, we get surprised that people don't like us. I don't know why we get surprised that people don't like what we believe, that it's not popular. And we want it to be popular. We want people to accept us. We want to be part of the mainstream. We need to wake up and realize we're not. And I'm talking to me tonight. We need to wake up and realize. See, in a war, they talked about some of the younger troops coming over, and, and you know, and there was a wake-up call when they suddenly realized there were real bullets being fired at them. We need a wake-up call. In fact, it's all around us. To wake up and realize we are in a war, and it requires a wartime mentality. And a wartime mentality means we're on alert. A wartime mentality means that we recognize there is an enemy out there and we have to do what we've got to do, whether we want to do it or not. I'm sure those soldiers didn't want to get up at 5 in the morning. You know, one of the soldiers I was interviewed said he was in his clothes for three straight months. (laughs) I mean, you understand at the end of the war day, they didn't blow a whistle at 5 o'clock. And they all went back to their motels, had a nice night's sleep, got a nice dinner, a nice breakfast, took a shower in the morning, put their uniforms on and went back out to the battle line. No, this was 24-7. It was full time until the war was won. How long did they have to fight? Until it was won. Until the enemy surrendered and it was over. So there's a mentality we've got to get. Starts by not looking so much at ourselves, not feeling sorrow for ourselves when things don't go the way we think they ought to go. And begin to recognize there's an enemy and whatever it takes is what we've got to do. Another thing in war was interesting because you, you had people from all different, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different economic backgrounds, all different educational backgrounds. And you know what? They were in the same foxhole together. In fact, there's a special that I think HBO did. I, 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 my, one of our sons really liked it, so he brought it home from once with us called Band of Brothers. Why? Because when you're in something together, and I need you, and you need, I, and you need me to survive, I don't care what the color of your skin is. I don't care whether you're Baptist, you know, Presbyterian. If you believe in, if we're on the same team, then we're in this together. It eliminates all social lines. It eliminates all economic lines. It eliminates all those lines because we need one another. And I got news for you, church. That's where it is today. Now, this is a wonderful church. God's been so blessed us in this church because there's so many of those lines are not here yet. But in the church general, it's still true. You've got black churches and Portuguese churches and white churches and they don't act as if we're part of the same body of Christ together. And it's an offense to God. But more than that, it's dangerous now. It's dangerous now. So there's a mentality that we have to have. There's a mentality we have to have. But the specific thing that I want to talk to you about is exactly that. That understand this, that in a wartime especially when the tide of war has been turned. Very often, the enemy is not done yet, and he will raise one last offensive to try to see if he can get you to quit. Some stories came to me from the Bible, so we're going to look at a couple of them, because I want to show you that that's exactly what Satan is like. And that shouldn't be so shocking, since he's the one behind these wars anyway. All right, let's go over to Exodus Chapter 4. 
children of Israel have been in bondage. You know the story. The end of Exodus 4. So what's happened is God's called Moses to be their deliverer. He's heard their cry. He's sending Moses to lead them out of Egypt. He's displayed miracles for Moses to perform. Moses says God has used Moses and performed these miracles and sends them back to the elders of Israel to perform these miracles for the elders so that they will know that God indeed has sent him. He's now done this. So we're going to pick up in verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the word which the Lord had spoken to Moses, and then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 31, So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So what's happened is God's told them, I'm saving you. Your years, 400 year plus years of bondage are now over. God's spoken. He sent a prophet. He sent his representative who's prof- and with the signs and wonders to prove that God has sent him and they're full of hope because victory has come. They're full of confidence. They're rejoicing and it says they worshipped God. Well, Mildred, pack your bags. We're on the way out. What we've been believing God for is done. We have God's word. We're out of here. It's done. Let's go to chapter 5. Afterwards, that's what the afterwards is after. Moses and Aaron went up and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people grow, go, not grow, go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, Oh, if God said go, then go ahead. Who am I to argue with God? Oh, no, not at all. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go there three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Now the people cried out for deliverance. God sent a deliverer. They're rejoicing. Their deliverers now go to tell Pharaoh, let them go. So they're in their camp. They're not at work today. They're celebrating. They're ready to go. Something just doesn't work right, though. Pharaoh's not cooperating with the program. Pharaoh doesn't understand that they're supposed to be delivered. Pharaoh's not going to let go quite so easily. In fact, what he's going to do is counterattack. Just like the Battle of the Bulge. Let's see what happens here. So he says in verse 4, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. What was happening is they had to make bricks, and they would make it out of mud and straw. The straw would help the bricks, the mud kind of congeal and hold together. 
what was happening is the Egyptians were providing the straw so that the, the, that the Hebrews could make more bricks because they had a quota of bricks that they had to make every day. Now what Pharaoh is saying is, obviously you've got too much time on your hands, so don't give them the straw. Let them go gather the straw for themselves. Now that's, he's not trying to be practical. He's trying to put pressure on them. Verse 8, And you shall lay on them the quarter bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they're idle, since they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. He's trying to get them to shut up, which is what he's trying to get you to do too. He's trying to say, Look, they opened their mouth, they claimed their freedom, and now it's costing them so that they won't open their mouth anymore and call out on God to deliver them. He's trying to intimidate them so that they'll stop speaking, calling on the Lord their God. And what he wants to do is intimidate you so you'll stop speaking the Word of God. We've talked about declaring the Word of God. We talked about that last week. We've talked about having done all the standard, what done all means. We've talked about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He was trying to keep them from calling on God, trying to keep them from speaking and declaring and crying out to God to deliver them. He was trying to intimidate them. Every time you step out in faith, it backfires on you, so stop doing it. Get back in your corner where you belong, staying under the oppression, staying under the hand of Pharaoh. Get back where you belong, for who are you to think you ought to be free? Well, they were the people of God, the people that had a covenant with God. And they had, out of laziness and out of weakness and out of ignorance, had yielded and turned over the the, the strength of that covenant, surrendered the strength of that covenant, and allowed Pharaoh to dominate them. And now they've cried out to be free. God's having mercy on them, wants to deliver them and set them free. But they're intimidated, and he wants to increase the intimidation. All right. So verse 10, the taskmasters go tell the people, this is what Pharaoh said, go get yourself straw so you can find where you can find it and none of your work work will be reduced. So the people scattered abroad, verse 12, throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. That's the little pieces, not the big pieces of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work for your daily quota as when there was straw. So all the officers of the children of Israel and Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task, making the bricks both yesterday and today as before? Verse 15. And the officers of the children of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing that with us as your servants this way? There's no straw given to your servants. And they say, Make bricks. Indeed, the servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. And But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Notice he keeps coming back to worshiping God. You've got time on your hands. You're trying to step out of who, you know, you're trying to step out from underneath my dominion so that you can worship God. Get back in your place. And he's putting pressure on them. He's putting pressure on them where they live. That's what the enemy uses today, the same trick and device, is to put pressure on you where you live. We're learning on Sundays about stepping into our vision, the call that God has for us. We began Sunday to look at being fishers of men, which is the purpose of your life. And as you begin to get into this, as you begin to get in this, don't be surprised as the enemy puts pressure. He can't stop you from hearing the word, 
but it'll put pressure on you in other areas of your life to distract you and to drain your strength. That's what the parable, part of what the parable of the sower is about. And the purpose of it is to distract you, to weaken you, to discourage you, to think you're never going to make it. You can't ever be free. You can't ever serve God. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's the enemy's last gasp effort because he knows his days are short. He knows his days are short. He knows that the hour's late. He knows what the prophecies say. He knows what the book of Revelation says. He knows what it says. He's just not moved by it. So what he was going to do is put as much pressure on as many people as he can where you live to get you to lay down, to get you to quit, to get you to get distracted from what God's purpose in your life is. If you read through what Paul went through, it's an eye-opening what Paul went through. And he learned the secret. We're going to talk about that later on. All right, let's go on here. Verse 20. Then as they came out from talking to Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron. Now, this is their own people. This is their pastor, in essence. All right? And Aaron, who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us abhorrent or, or, or evil in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put the sword in their hands to kill us. In other words, now the people are blaming Moses. This wasn't his idea. This was their idea to be free. But they hadn't counted the cost of the freedom recognizing that they had an enemy who didn't want to see them free. So now under pressure, it's not where their heart was, it's not what under, on a good day they would have done, but under pressure, we'll say things and do things that we wouldn't say when we're not under pressure. You can get touchy, irritable. You can, you do get touchy sometimes and irritable, don't you? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. So now they're blaming Moses and Aaron. Verse 22, so look what Moses does. This is, I love how the Bible just shows us how real people are. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? And why is it you sent me? <laughs> no, he doesn't understand what's going on. But notice he went to the Lord with it. I read you Psalm 143. David didn't understand what was going on. But what did he do? Whenever he didn't understand what was going on, he turned to the Lord and just got real with him. Amen. And then he ended up by saying, but nevertheless, I will trust in the Lord. We're going to see him in a minute. Okay. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you, verse 22, why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why is it you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and neither have you delivered your people at all. You hear what he's saying? This is Moses. He's going to God and says, What's going on here? I've done what you said to do. I've come back. I've done the miracles. I told them what you answered their prayer. And I've gone to Pharaoh and I've done exactly what you said to do. And he's not, not only is he making things harder, you haven't delivered us.
chapter 6. God's so patient with us. I don't know about you, but that encourages me sometimes. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Notice he doesn't get upset at Moses. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said, This is so good. It just reminds Moses who he is. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as Almighty God. But my name, Lord, was not known to them. Now, Almighty God is the Hebrew word El Shaddai, which has been taught as, you know, the all-sufficient one, what it really, it literally means, it means, can mean all many breasted one. It means a source of, a source of nutrition, source of all you need. And he said, I appeared to them in that capacity. But by a new name do I appear to you. And that name in your English Bible is Lord, but in Hebrew it is Yahweh. which is the covenant name for God. I am with you in whatever you need. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they are strangers. So notice God's answer to Moses was, I will do what I said I'll do because I am God. When Job went through all the stuff Job went through, God appears on the scene to bring him out of all that mess and out of all his things that he was saying and the, the, the bitterness that was coming out of him. God's answer was just a point to who he is. He starts by saying, Where were you who spoke such things without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you? In other words, what part of creation did you contribute to? <laughs> now, he's not putting Job in his place in, in, a, in the sense that we usually use that term. He was just reminding Job who he is. And that's what God's doing here. So in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of all things that look like they're not working, they're getting worse, God's answer was to the leader... I'm still God. Don't forget who I am. I'm I'm not up there going, oh my goodness, I don't know what we're going to do now. I meant what I said. And he still means what he says today. I am am God. And I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant-making God. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But if you study that covenant, and we do a course in the School of Ministry on Covenant, you study that covenant, what you'll find is that covenant was ultimately re-executed on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, He cut a new version of that old covenant. 
and everything we have and everything God's promised to us is sealed by the blood of that covenant on that cross. So whenever you don't understand things, whenever things look overwhelming to you, you have a right to go to that covenant and call upon that covenant God who will not fail you, who will not forsake you. You may feel forsaken just like David in the psalm we read, but he, God has not forsaken you. He is the God of covenant. Verse 5, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. The word remembered doesn't mean God had forgotten that now it came back to his mind. The word remember means he's exercising his side of that covenant. Therefore, to the children of Israel, say to the children of Israel, this is what you go back and say to them, I am the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. I will make, bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out of the burdens of of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give to you an heritage, for I am the Lord. Verse 9. So thus Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Moses got it, but they didn't. It's interesting, he could not bring them into the promised land for the very reason that he couldn't, had trouble even getting them out. Let's look at another example. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now I read to you a psalm at the beginning by David about an anguish that he was going through. We're going to take a look at pieces of his story here and see something similar. 1 Samuel 16, what's happened before this is the children of Israel have decided they want to be like every other nation. They want a king that they can see. God wanted to be their king. And so they've wanted a king, and, and God said, all right, if you want a king, I'll give you one. We've talked about this before. You've got to be careful sometimes. If you, if you just keep pushing God about something, He may give in and let you have what you ask for, even though He knows it's not good for you. And that's what happened here. He said, okay, you can have a king, but here's what's going to happen to you. He's going to tax you beyond anything. I, all, all God required was a tenth. He's going to tax you, and then he was going to multiply it back to them. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your daughters to be in service. Your men, young men are going to go into the army and into service for, me, for him. But they wanted a king anyway. So God gives them Saul. Saul several times disobeys God. God says, I have to remove him from being king. And chapter 16 is where God has chosen and now anoints young David to be his replacement. So that's where we're going to start the story. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12. So God sends Samuel to Jesse's household. And Jesse has a number of kids, sons. Lines them all up, stands before them, and God says no to each one of them. Now, Samuel was a man of God. So if God said that this man's son is going to be king and he didn't see one of the sons, he asked questions. Do you have any more? And he said, oh, yeah, there's the kid. Forgot about him. 
He's out taking care of my sheep. And so he calls him in. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. That's David. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise to Samuel. Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Now David realizes what's going on here. He's been called in, called in out of the field. His brothers are standing by. And, and Samuel comes over with, an, with a horn that had anointing oil in it. And they didn't just, you know, little dab will do you. They dumped it over him. Because the word anoint actually means to smear over anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, David. From that day forward, so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So David gets up like every other day. He's out taking care of it, just doing his job. It's amazing what will happen if you're just doing what you're supposed to do. See, God can find you where you are if you're doing what you're supposed to do. little side journey here. There's some of you that there's something in this church you're supposed to be doing, you're not doing, and you don't want to do it because you want to be in the sanctuary and hear the Word taught, and God's been waiting for you in the nursery or wherever it is He called you, that's where He wants to speak to you. See, He'll speak to you where He sent you, and you're sitting here saying, I don't know why I'm not hearing from God, because you're not where you're supposed to be. See, He was doing what He was supposed to be doing, and now God promotes Him when he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, God could find him where he was. God can find you where you are to get you where he wants you to be. But what he can't do is make you get what you're supposed to be. That's up to you. That's an act of your will. All right, enough of that. That wasn't too popular. All right, so my point is this. Like every other day in his life, gets up, they doesn't know it's going to be any different. Next thing you know, some servant comes out, called, your dad wants you. So he comes in, his brothers are standing there looking around, what's he doing here? And the prophet, he knows who the prophet is, the prophet comes over, takes his anointing oil, and pours it over his head, and anoints him to be king. If that wasn't enough, the Spirit of God comes down and anoints him. This is some kind of day. Wow! Get my bags packed. I'm going to the capital. I'm ready to move into the pallet. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. Now, it gets even better for David because now what happens in chapter 17, he's called to the battlefield to help feed his brothers. Long story short, at the end of this day, he has slayed the enemy of Israel, Goliath. He's now a national hero. He saved Israel. Slain the giant that was challenging the warriors of Israel. He's now acclaimed as a king. David, Saul, brings him into the palace, has him become one of his warriors, and David goes out and just starts destroying thousands upon thousands of Philistines. Now he comes back in, and the word gets out over in chapter 18, He's become really popular, especially with the ladies. Verse 6, Now it happened as he was coming home, David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, and the woman came out of the streets, the cities, and the Israel were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with music. So they're celebrating the return of the king and the army. 
However, the women began to sing and dance this song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So David's now not only a national hero, he's now their parade, and he's being honored. Wow, man, this is, this is it. My call's being fulfilled. I'm being recognized. Wow, it's a downhill. God's anointed me. We're going downhill now, baby. It's just open doors into the palace. Not quite so fast. There was a battle of the bulge that he had to go through. Oh, he gets into the palace all right. And Saul begins to realize, this guy's my replacement. And it says, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And he went and entertained an evil spirit. And he now becomes jealous of David. And to shorten the story down, he begins to take the armies of Israel and brings all them to bear with a sole purpose of destroying David's life. David has to flee for his life out into the wilderness. You've been in the wilderness there. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the Hampton Inn. I mean, it is. He's hiding in caves. It's not the palace. I thought when Samuel anointed me, I was going to the palace. No, he's hiding in caves for his life. And, and to, again, to shorten the story down, what happens is he gets some men around him, which were primarily convicts, dissidents, you know, outcasts, not soldiers. And David has to train them and equip them. Finally, he has to go hide among the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And it gets so bad that the Philistines kick him, kick him out. Even the enemy won't keep him. Let's go to 1 Samuel 30. Again, I've got to shorten the story. 29 is when he gets kicked out of Philistia. Now, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag. Ziklag was a town in the southern part of Israel, what's called the Negev, with the wilderness down there. On the third day, and the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag and attacked Ziklag. And so, so they've set up headquarters in a city called Ziklag. Now, let me tell you what Ziklag means. The, word, the name Ziklag means place of overwhelming despair. Another definition is surrounding grief. Where do I, where do you live? I live in the place of overwhelming despair. <laughs> now there have been days I felt like it. That's the name of the city. That's now his headquarters. He's out doing warfare. They come back and this is what they find. That the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and those that were there. That means the kids, the women, the wives of his soldiers, the families who they'd left at home, David's out fighting for his life, comes back to his only refuge, a place of overwhelming despair, and find out the enemy has now come into his home camp, taken their wives, their children, and all their belongings, 
And the camp's empty. So about when it's got to the point you think it can't get any worse, it got worse. Oh, but it's not over yet. They'd taken captive the women and those that were there from the small to the great. They did, but they didn't kill anybody, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Can't get any worse than this. And David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Abinoam, the Jezreite, and Abigail, the widow of the Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive also. And David was greatly distressed. You don't think it can get any worse? For the people spoke of stoning him. Now the only man who ever gathered with him have had it. There's no hope. They followed him with the hope he was going to be king. It's now gone from bad to worse to worse, living in a city of overwhelming despair. Now there's nothing there. That's been burned. Even the despair's been burned. <laughs> their goods have been taken. Their wives, you know. And see, the, the devil, there's nowhere is it written that the devil has to play fair. This is part of warfare mentality. Why do we think, because, well, that isn't fair. Where is it written? Where there's rules by which this war has to be fought. He doesn't play fair. You're there trying to serve God. He may know he can't get at you, so he may try to get at your children. That's what happened here. He got at their wives, their family, and their children. Why? To discourage them. To say, all right, I can't stop you, but I can take what's valuable to you away from you. What was he after? He wasn't after their children. He wasn't after their families. He was to get David to give up his call. His purpose for which he was called. And now, the only men that were with him, supporting him, have had it so, they've had it so much, they're now discussing whether they're going to stone him or not. Look what David does. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his son and his daughter. But David strengthened himself in the Lord as God. There was nobody left to strengthen him, so he encouraged himself in the Lord how did he do that well I just read you one of them the Psalms he didn't read the Psalms he wrote them Psalm 143 we just read he didn't read it you've heard me say he didn't write he didn't write it sitting on a beach somewhere with his electric harp you know and his iPod listening to music and coming up with you know composing something he wrote it things like that probably in Ziklag. David encouraged himself, strengthened himself in the Lord. Then David saw, said to Abathar the priest, please bring the ephod to me. 
And Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. See, what's he do? He goes back to God to ask him what to do. Saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answered and said, pursue them, for you shall surely overtake them without fail, and you will recover all. See, when it looks like all is lost, when it looks like all is lost, only God knows whether it's lost or not. See, what looks all is lost to you is not all is lost to God. Ask Job. So David went, and he and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besar. What happens basically is they find an Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, verse 11. And they gave him some bread, and he ate, and they gave him some water, and he drank a piece of cake. And David said to him, verse 13, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he says, Well, I'm a young man from Egypt, and I was a servant of an Amalekite, Remember, those are the ones that took all their children and their family. And my master left me behind three days ago because I fell sick. We made an invasion in the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah in the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. He has no idea who David is. See, God's bringing his answer and deliverance through a means he never dreamed was possible. But it's all because David, at the darkest hour, when even his own men, who had been so faithful, now were turning on him. David turned to the Lord to strengthen him. At the moment when he was the most tempted to say, this is just not worth it, I can't do it, it's over. Right, I didn't finish the story, but what happened is the Germans surrounded the city of Bastogne for I don't know how many days. And they were cut off from food, they were cut off from because there was fog and they, the Allies couldn't drop uh, uh, food or ammunition. They were running out of ammunition, running out of bullets, and they were running out of food and water. Other than that, everything was fine. And of course, the story is that the German general sends an envoy and says, you know, we demand unconditional surrender. And the American general says, nuts. <laughs> that was it. All he was, he wouldn't quit. He wouldn't quit. And not long after that, the weather breaks, the Allies are able to drop in supplies, and eventually they liberate the city, and it, it stopped at a critical point, the ba that battle that was critical. Here, David, at that critical moment, instead of quitting, there are critical moments in your life, and you may not recognize them ahead of time. It's when you develop the character beforehand to that in those critical moments, you'll do what you've put into your heart and sown into your heart beforehand. And David had built in him a faith and confidence in God out there with the sheep, out there taking care of them, defending them against the lion and the bear. And in this moment of utter despair, his instinct that had been built, he built into himself was still to turn to God when everything looked hopeless. The Egyptian says, yeah, I was part of the raiding party. They left me behind because I was sick. And David says, do you know where they are? He says, oh, yeah, I can take it to them. So he takes them down. David attacks. By the time they're finished, they've got back all their families, all their goods, and they plundered all the Amalekites' goods. So they've come out of this richer than when it started, but it gets better. That's chapter 30. Chapter 31 what happens right after this is Saul and his son are in battle 
and Saul is killed. And the people come looking for David to make him king. In the darkest hour, the point is this. When God's made a promise to you, God's given you a vision or a purpose or a word or encouragement, and you take that stand on it. Don't be shocked if the enemy makes an all-out attack against you when you don't expect it. So you need to expect it and be prepared. And don't be surprised because what he's trying... He can't win. All he can do is get you to lose. And as long as you won't quit, you'll win. It's all he's after is to get you to quit. You'll win. And in that time of battle, in that time when it feels as if you can't go on any longer, if you ever get to that place, and you will at some point, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Because usually... Usually, that point is right before the victory. The closer to the victory, the more desperate the enemy gets to get you to quit. God has warned us that there will be opposition. John 16:33 says, "In this world you will, not might." have tribulation. How many of you had that on your refrigerator? <laughs> Acts 14, it's the promise of God, isn't it? You don't have to stand for that one. Acts 14:22. They said, "We must Paul said we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven of God." I'm going to 1 Thessalonians 3. I want to read this to you. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy, my brother, to you, to check on you. Our fellow way, to establish you, encourage to, and encourage you concerning your faith, verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we were appointed to this. God didn't plan the afflictions against Paul, but by the very nature of what Paul was called to do, there was opposition. You know, some of the things we don't look at very carefully, but I think it's in verse chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, no, 2 Corinthians. He says, I was in despair, but I was not, I didn't quit. I was bent, but I didn't break. I was, you know, despair is not a fun thing to go through. Paul was in despair at times, but it didn't stop him. Chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians says he even got to the point he despaired of his own life. But that's when he calls on God, the God of all comfort. That he comforted me, and I've comforted others with the comfort with which he's comforted me. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of the saw. But we'll end with this good news. The good news is, Jesus has already won the war. 1 John 3.8 says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. Matthew 16.18, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give you power over Satan, authority over Satan. Behold, I give you power over Satan. If I don't get this started right, I don't get it out right. Oh, authority over Satan. Yeah, that's, that's it. She's got it right. Luke 10, 19. I give you authority over all the power of the enemy so that nothing shall in any way hurt you. 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that's in you. Greater. Right now, sitting where you are. Right now. In the dwelling in Ziklag. Feeling like you're totally empty and powerless. Can't go on another day. Right where you are in the midst of the worst you've ever felt. Greater is he that's in you. Than he that's in the world. All you got to do is stir him up. All you got to do is stir him up. Therefore, my beloved brethren. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. But as for you, my brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And we'll end with Galatians 6, 9. Wow, whoops, getting late. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not faint. We will reap. We will reap. We will reap. We will reap. reap. If we do not faint. We will reap. God's answer to the children of Israel through Moses, to Moses was, I heard what Pharaoh did, but I'm still God. And I will do what I said I will do. You will reap if you do not faint. You, you will reap if you do not faint. So don't grow weary in doing well. Because you will reap. You have God's word on it. Not your feelings. You have God's word on it. You will reap. There's certain verses I just say to myself. That's a good one to add to it. I will reap. I say every day, sometimes over and over, I walk by faith and not by sight. I don't walk by how I feel. I don't walk by how things look. I don't walk by what people tell me. I walk by faith and not by sight. And there are days I say that by faith. (laughs) But you will reap if you do not faint. So don't grow weary in well-doing.